may be seated this morning. Going to dismiss our children as well as they head downstairs. How's everybody doing this morning? I'm convinced. Good, good. Nobody said busy. Must be summer. Promises are powerful, especially promises made from a parent to a child. One of the most meaningful, some of the most meaningful moments that I have with my children are when I look them in the eyes and convey uh, unconditional love to them. Sometimes I plan these moments, and oftentimes they're just spontaneous, where uh, things have gone well, and uh, maybe they have accomplished something, and you want to convey that you're proud of them, and yet understand that you love them even if they did not accomplish that, if that makes sense. And oftentimes, unconditional love is powerfully conveyed when uh, they sin, or they mess up, or they fail miserably. And so to be able to look into their eyes, uh, sometimes emotional, sometimes not, and just say, I want you to know something that no matter what you do, no matter what you say, I promise to love you. Those are powerful, powerful moments. There's nothing you can do to change my love for you. That's a powerful promise. Uh, it's grace. And the promise that I make toward them is, sure, it's my child, right? There's something innate about wanting to convey love to your child, but it's, it's more than that. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a grace and a love that I've known in relationship to God. Unconditional love unchanging favor, that even in the midst of my worst moments, I hear the word of God speak to me and promise love, acceptance in Jesus Christ. And so as a dad, I want them to know that. I want them to experience that. Yes, I want them to hear it and read it in the scriptures, but as I father them, I want them to see in some small measure in, in comparison to the infinite measure of God, that this is what God is like. I represent God. I'm not God. I'm imperfect. They know that as a dad. But in those moments, I'm promising them something that God has promised to his children. Those moments are powerful. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, start doing that. Start doing that. Promises are powerful especially promises of love and provision and acceptance. That love is one that the first book of the Bible really teach us is in the nature of God, right? The historical books into the book that we're looking at today, Joshua, we see that the Lord is a promise-making God. He makes promises. He does so all throughout the opening books of the Bible. He says, uh, to Abraham, I'll make you into a great nation. 
and I'm going to give you offspring, and I'm going to give you land. I have a place for you, and I'm going to bring you into that place. It all started with Abraham, but we understand we've been through Exodus together in our history as a church. We know that that promise continued through the ministry and leadership of Moses, right? That they were, yes, because of a famine brought into the land of Egypt, but that was not the place that God had purposed for his people. And so as they find themselves in 400 plus years of slavery, God is bringing about his purposes through the leadership and the ministry of Moses to what? Redeem them out of a place, under the yoke of a people, to be the people of God in the place that he has set for them. And so he redeems them powerfully out of Egypt. Moses leads them through the wilderness and he dies. And then the Lord raises up Joshua for what? To be their strong military leader. To what? Bring them into this promised land. Known as the land of the Canaanites. Land was central to the promise of God to the people of Israel. They were to go to that land. They were to uh, uh, engage in battle for that land. And they were to rid the people of that land and live there. And so the Lord's promise calls these people, known as Israel, to a response. I think we all need to even think about that right now. While there's unconditional promise, it still calls us to a response. And so that is what the Lord called the people of Israel to. Fully inhabit the land of Canaan, and oh, by the way, fully remove the Canaanites and the people of that land. And so we hear that. And we already are, are having that, that, that taste of injustice in our mind. That how could God devote a whole people, a whole land to utter destruction and bring a people there uh, whose land it was not theirs, at least in the eyes of the people that lived there. It seems like extremism, doesn't it? It seems a little extreme that God would do this. But if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 9, you see that it was not because Israel deserved this land that they were getting it. He says, it's not because of your righteousness. Please don't assume that it's because of your righteousness that I'm bringing you into this land. This is an act of grace on the uh, part of God toward the Israelites. But he says, the reason I will drive out the people of that land is because this is a wicked people. This is a wicked, idolatrous people. And so God's action to bring his people into the promised land was indeed an act of grace, a gift. But it is also an act of justice toward people who God considers to be wicked. Dave, Dal Ralph Davis says this, that the conquest of the land may not be palatable. It may not taste good to us with our own understanding of justice. But understand this, it may not be palatable, but it is just the conquest of the Holy Land. And so here they are. We come to the book of Judges. Here they are taking possession of the uh, promised land. Joshua has divided the land amongst the 12 tribes of Israel, given this land to them and apportioned it out to them. But the first verse, first verse of 
Judges tells us that something very significant has occurred. The leader, known as Joshua, is what? He's dead. He's dead. He's dead. And the last verse of the book, if you go all the way to the end, tells us another reality that we cannot overlook. That there is no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So at the opening chapter of Judges, we see that Israel is existing without a Joshua. And at the end of the book, we see that Israel existing without any leader, unifying leader whatsoever. No king. And in the midst of that day, everyone did what was evil, I'm sorry, what was right in their own eyes. And so we have no Joshua, we have no king. And so the question for the people of God is this, now who? Now who? We do not have Moses. We do not have Joshua. Now who? Who will guide us? Who will lead us? Who will make this conquest and uh, removal of the Canaanites a reality for us? Who will lead us into the purposes of God without a Joshua and without a king? Open your Bibles to Judges chapter 1. Judges chapter 1. Listen. If there was ever a time where we needed less distractions in our lives, it was reading the full text of Judges 1 through 2, 5. And just as an introduction, there will be long passages that we're going to read with names that we can't pronounce, so it seems, and cities that we've never heard of. And we could easily get drawn into Facebook and Twitter. We can easily be thinking about what's coming up this week. During this series, I want you to turn your brain on. I know it's Sunday morning, you're going back to work tomorrow, but please, turn your brain on a little bit, dive into this text, remove the distractions, do not disturb on your phones, grab an old school leather Bible, if you dare, and let's read this together. Grab a pen, underline some things, put a question mark in the margin, we're going to dive into the scriptures together, and I want you to just hang in there with me, okay? You're going to do it? All right, Paul Grossman. All right, chapter 1 of Judges. Here we go, 15 weeks. You ready? Yeah, Paul Grossman. Verse 1. We need a little lightheartedness before this. <laughs> Verse 1, the Word of God. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up for us? I'm sorry, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I've given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. And then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him 
and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut, cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. And as I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country and the Negev and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived at Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai. Verse 11. From there he went, I'm sorry, from there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give Aixa my daughter for a wife. Don't miss this name as we'll see it later. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aixa his daughter for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Give me a blessing, since you have set me in the land of the Negev. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Verse 16, And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' Moses' father-in-law, went up, with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who lived at Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. And the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and in all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built this city and called its name Luz. This is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shein and its villages, or Ta'anak and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibleim and its villages or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor. 
but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalol. So the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alab or of Akzib or of Halba or of Afik or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down into the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heres, in Ayajalon, and of Sha'albim, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah and upward. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt. And brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you. But they shall become thorns in your sides. And their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. This is God's word. And all God's people said, Amen. Lord, speak to us today from Judges chapter 1. Going all the way back to the beginning, we do come face to face with somewhat of a crisis in the nation of Israel. Joshua is dead, and they're asking the question, now who? So they understood the purpose that God had for them. It was clear. They were to go inhabit the land, take possession of the land, and remove the people of the land. But the question was, who would lead them into this? And they know that who their ultimate leader and guider is, that is the Lord. And so they go and they inquire of the Lord after the death of Joshua, and they ask the question, who shall go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord graciously, clearly answers them. The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And so right away, In simplest form, we're getting the answer to the question, now who? It's the Lord who is leading and guiding His people according to His promises. He hears their inquiry, and now He is leading them, and He has said, Judah's the guy. Judah is the tribe uh, uh, that will go first. And so Judah takes action. Man, raise your hand if you love to take action And you love to look at people who take action. I am always amazed at people in my life who take decisive action. They see an issue. 
They hear a need that needs to be dealt with, and the call goes out, and the person stands up and says, I'm in, I'll do it. Sometimes I find myself shying away, or being indecisive, or hesitant, not sure what to do, not sure what the next step is, but we see that Judah, uh, showing somewhat a little bit of bravery and a little bit of action, does that, right? Verse 3, Judah steps up. He hears the answer of the Lord, and he takes action. But yet, verse 3 says that he goes to Simeon, right? He asks Simeon, hey, let's make an alliance here, right? How about this? Let's cut a deal. The Lord's called me to go first, but I'll make a deal with you. You come with me and take on the people of the territory that I'm fighting against. I'll go with you later. And so they enter into an alliance, a joint venture, a partnership. And we begin to scratch our heads a little bit. I'm not so sure that's exactly what the Lord said, but we continue to read, and they have success, right? They go up, and uh, it says uh, the, that the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. They defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found the king of Bezek, the lord of Bezek, Adonai Bezek, at Bezek, and they fought against him. And what do they do? They wipe him out, right? No, not really. They cut off his fingers and his big toes. But you go, well, what in the world is going on there? Well, this is typical Canaanite practice. You see that even in Adonai Bezek's response, right? This is what I have done to people. I've been the one cutting off the fingers and the big toes, and now God is repaying me for what I've done. So again, if we're questioning whether or not this is a just act, uh, act on God to remove the Canaanites, maybe we should ask the, the leader of the Canaanites, Adonai Bezek. He's saying, God has repaid me for what I have done. He recognizes the justice of God that is being played out. And so Adonai, Adonai Bezek is defeated, and he's brought to Jerusalem, and he dies. Then the men of Judah go to Jerusalem, and they capture it, uh, and they strike it with the sword, verse 8, right? And then they take Hebron, verse 10, and the Negev, and then they find themselves in a city called Debir, which is formerly known as Kiriath Sefer, and uh, they continue their exploits, and uh, basically Caleb says, if anybody captures that city, I'm going to give him my daughter, right? And so Othniel steps up and he says, I'll do it. I'll take it. He wins the victory. Then he gets Aksa, uh, uh, Caleb's daughter. And then Aksa, being wise, says, listen, if I'm going to get some land, I better get some water. So put me near some springs. And so Caleb says, sure, they get the water near the springs. So here we are in verse 16. The Kenites find themselves in the wilderness of Judah. Just as uh, this is uh, Moses' father-in-law, the Kenite. And uh, Judah continues, verse 17, with Simeon, his brother. They're defeating the Canaanites that lived in Zephath. They go to Gaza, Eshkelon, uh, Ekron. And they're seemingly gaining control over this promised land. So in some ways, we're looking at this and we're saying, wow, okay. Mission accomplished. They're doing exactly what the Lord would have them do. But then we read verse 19, and we have this tension, right? This, you're going to get a lot of tension in Judges. If, if you want to know an introductory theme that's going to play out in the book of Judges, it's going to be a lot of both ands, a lot of tension going on. And so we see in verse 19, 
that Judah, the Lord is with Judah, right? But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of fire. And right there, you're scratching your head. You're starting to ask questions, right? Like, wait a minute, is the Lord not capable? He took out Egypt. I mean, the chariots of iron in, in this area, the inhabitants of the plain, they couldn't compare to the, to the glory and the power of Egypt, right? So what's going on here? The Lord is with Judah. He's carrying out his purposes through the actions of Judah. But at the very same time, there's an inability, a seeming inability on the part of Judah to do what the Lord requires. So is God incapable? Is the, is the Lord incapable right now in helping Judah gain victory? Are chariots of iron, technology, standing in the way of the power of the Lord? So we have this tension, the presence of the Lord, and yet this uh, inability uh, to drive out the, chari- uh, the inhabitants of the plain. So Hebron is taken drives out the three sons of Anak. Verse 21, the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites. Now you're starting to see a pattern. The people of Judah could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain. Now the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites, and the Jebusites still live in Jerusalem per the time of the author. Right? Joseph goes up to Bethel. The Lord is with them. There it is again. They... Again, don't totally remove the people. They once again enter into a partnership with the spies. And the spies do what? They leave that place and they go build a city and call it the same thing. So what's going on? What's going on? It it leads you to a point of evaluation about what is really taking place in the lives of the people of Israel. You see at verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out. Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko. Right? Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshemesh. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country. The Lord's purpose and plan was that they have full possession of the land and what we see taking place while there's some initial success in the military exploits of judah there is this digression in their experience to where now you see the people of canaan living amongst amongst the israelites to where the israelites are living amongst the people of canaan and again we're scratching our head, trying to figure out what is going on. And that's the tension of the opening chapter of the book. There's no Joshua. Who will go up for us? You have Judah. You have all these military exploits. And you have what looks to be a victory and maintaining control over the promised land. It looks like the Lord is making this all happen and that they are walking in faithfulness. And yet, you see language and alliances that tells you that something's not quite right. Do you see that? The people of Canaan are still living amongst the people of Israel. While they're in the land, and they have some sort of control 
over the land. They have not fully removed the people of the land. And so we're asking ourselves the question, is this just a, a mission accomplished? Is this a job well done? I mean, some of us look back on experiences in our life where we say, okay, uh, I, I didn't, it wasn't perfect. Uh, it was a little messier than we would have thought. But at the end of the day, we pretty much did what the Lord wanted us to do, right? I mean, uh, we definitely sinned and made mistakes along the way, but for the most part, we're living in God's blessing. We have control of the promised land. I think maybe you could identify with that. So what is it? What is it? What is the Lord's perspective on what has taken place as we open up the book of Judges? We see it in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The angel of the Lord went up. Don't miss that language. If you go back to verse 1, who will go up for us against the Canaanites? And again, we're asking the question, now who? And again, we're getting the answer, right? We're getting the answer for God's people. It's always the same person. It's always the same answer. It is the Lord, verse 1, the angel of the Lord is going up. The angel of the Lord went up. Don't miss that language. He left Gilgal and he went to Bochim, which as we know means the place of weeping. Verse 5. We're going to see how that comes about. And the Lord comes to his people. And what does he say? He reminds them of the basis of their relationship. He says, listen. I brought you up from Egypt. I brought you up out of that land to bring you to another land that I swore to your fathers. He said, I will never break my covenant with you. Such unconditional promise that the Lord gives to His people. Do you remember how this all started, Israel? When we've lost our way in life, it's good to remember how it all started. The basis of our relationship with God. When things are confusing, when things have gone all wrong, when we find ourselves so far from where we thought we would be, we go back to this, being reminded of how it all started. Some of you need to do some reflection today on what is the basis of your relationship with God. And it is always, across all time, our relationship with God is always on the basis of a covenant that He has made with us. It's always on the basis of a promise that He made to us. It's never on the basis of our merit. It's never on the basis of our righteousness. I'm not bringing you into that land because of your righteousness. Please. It's not because you're great. It's actually the opposite. It's because I, in my sovereignty and in according to my purposes, have chosen to put my favor upon you. I've chosen you. And my desire for you is that you be in this land. And I swore to you that I would never break that covenant. I would never renege on that promise. Covenant commitment is central to the nature of God. And some of us need to just ponder that more. Think about that more. That our, our relationship is not based on deeds. It is based on 
grace and promise. Man, our marriages need to come face to face with that, that we relate to one another, not on the basis of deeds or works done in righteousness, not because somebody deserves my love, but because it has been promised. And that's why I give it. It's because that's the very love that we have received from the God that has saved us in Jesus Christ. It is on the basis of promise. You never deserved it. Be reminded today of the basis of your relationship with God. It is not your works. It is not your merit. It is God's divine choice and His divine grace that He dispenses to whom He will. Someone say, preach. I need to hear that today. Because so often I can look at other people and begin to judge them on the basis of what they do and what they accomplish. But that is not the way that God enters into relationship with his people. He does so on the basis of promise and grace. That's what he's reminding his people. Don't forget who bought you. Don't forget where I brought you. Don't forget where you came from and why that all was played out. My promise, my covenant that I made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I swore to you that I would never break it. But don't forget what that grace called you to. That grace is unconditional. But understand this, that grace propels us to some response. Any grace that is received from God is a grace that propels us to a certain response to Him. If it's real, that kind of unconditional love, that kind of promise, if it's just words only, fine. But if it's words that actually make an impact on our eternity and on our standing before God, if that's what it does, then surely His grace calls us to response, radical response. Life-transforming response. And I think so many of us in this easy grace, easy believism, yeah, head nod to Jesus, show up on Sunday only kind of response. And these days, don't even show up on Sunday. Maybe periodically, if there's not something else going on. Again, it's easy for us to have a very minimal response But the Lord lays out his expectations. He said, this is what I told you. You shall not make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. Listen, you don't get to have a covenant with me and a covenant with anybody else. Man, some of us need to wrestle with this this morning. We don't get to have a little bit of of the Lord and a little bit of American society. We don't get to, to have a little bit of allegiance and commitment with the God who has saved us, and also have other gods. We can't enter into promise with the Lord of the Bible and enter into some sort of agreement with somebody else. Absolutely not. He desires an undivided heart. God wants no roommate in your heart. He's not interested in sharing space. He's not interested in saving bills. There's no pragmatic decision here. Solely and wholly devoted to me. You made an agreement with me. You don't make a covenant with them. It's that simple. And part of this covenant was that you were to fully drive out the inhabitants of Canaan. You were to remove them completely. 
And you are to break down all of their altars. There will be no worship of any other God in my place, under, in my kingdom, under my rule. so easy to have a divided heart today. so easy to be pulled in multiple directions. To give our think we're giving ourselves over and enjoying the blessings of multiple gods. He says no to that. And again, we're still at a place of evaluation. Did they do it? Well, verse what? Verse 2b says, But you have not obeyed my voice. I was faithful. And that will always be true. But you have not obeyed my voice. So for wondering if they succeeded, we get the Lord's answer here. They failed miserably. Israel failed miserably. And maybe the Israelites are shocked. Maybe they're, wait a minute, we, we've got control of the promised land. Yeah, some of them are still living around, and yeah, we didn't tear down the altars, but... but we pretty much got the, got the outcome you wanted, right, Lord? But no. The Lord confronts their sin. He calls it what it is. You have not obeyed my voice. And so we go back and we wonder, is it because they could not drive out the people of the plain? And it's just a statement of fact that they did not drive out the Canaanites in all those respective cities? Is that it? And we come face to face with the fact that these people simply would not drive out the Canaanites. They would not drive out the Canaanites. They simply, it was a matter of the will. And I love the way Dale Ralph Davis brings this out. He says, the picture of Judges 1 gives us is an Israel in substantial control of Canaan. A people clearly successful through certainly though certainly disobedient. Pragmatic success and spiritual failure. A strange but possible combination. And so Israel is dominant if not obedient. She enjoys superiority even if she does not maintain fidelity. Wow. I wonder if many of us find ourselves duped into thinking that we're living in God's blessing because things seem to be going well. That for all intensive purposes, we're doing all the right things in life. The things that we think God is calling us to. Or we've done it to some degree. And we think that that's sufficient. And because we're living in some form of blessing or success, that that must mean that God would deem us to be faithful. But the truth is, is success is no proof for faithfulness. Success is no proof of faithfulness. And it is not necessarily the blessing of God. And I want to point out this in this heavy opportunity culture. Doreen and I get new opportunities every single day to give our time, our money, and our devotion. And I know that you do too. Not every good opportunity is a gift from the Lord. It's not always a blessing from God. It could be the opposite. It could be the luring of the Canaanite culture to come in and adopt the values and the gods and the behaviors and the beliefs of the world around you. 
So be very careful about that. Not every opportunity is from the Lord. It's not always God being good to you. Again, we believe all things. We know that as we trust in Him, He's working things out. He's using all moments. But understand this, half-hearted obedience is not obedience. It's total failure. It's misery. That's what this teaches us. That while these people are unfaithful to Him, it is the Lord who will be faithful. It is the Lord who faithfully keeps His covenant even when His people won't. That is the storyline of Judges. The Lord is faithful when His people will not be faithful. Right? He continues to move in these people, and yes, He uses flawed leaders who on the one hand, Hebrews tells us, exhibit faith, but on the other hand, are just ridiculously unfaithful to God. So if you're looking for a series that's going to point out to you a bunch of heroes, 12 heroes that we can be like, that's not what this series is going to be like at all. In fact, what we're going to see, back to the tension, is God being faithful even through sinful, flawed leaders. Because that's what Judges is about. The Lord will. The Lord is who? Will faithfully keep His covenant, His promise, when His people won't. And so the Lord curses them. Which is, by the way, an expression of His faithfulness. He said, man, He was kind of harsh. No, He's being faithful. If you go back to Joshua 23, you see that Joshua warned the people. If you do not drive out the people, if you turn to the Lord's calling to the right or to the left, these people will be a snare to you. And that's exactly what happens. He says, I will not drive out these people before you. In fact, they're going to become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. That when we deal casually with the, the values and, the, and the, the system of belief and the conviction and the behaviors of the world around us, and we're not radically intent with ridding ourselves of that and putting to death the sinful nature and radically devoted to pursuing the God who has saved us, when we just casually let it just be there, all of a sudden the thing that we ignore and we say it is not a big deal becomes a shackle to our feet. A snare that ultimately leads us to destruction. So we can't, if if there's anything that that Judges is going to teach us, is that when we deal with sin casually, or flirt, we're flirtatious with the values and the behaviors of the world around us, and we're not radically in hot pursuit of the holiness of God and His calling on our lives, we are in danger of being ensnared by the evils of this society. And man, I don't know about you, but I feel a constant magnetic pull to the values of 2018 suburban Northeast America. It's all, I feel it. It's magnetic. It pulls me. And sometimes it feels like a snare. Does it for you? We are in this world, but we are not of this world. Grace never leads us to half-hearted devotion. It always propels us to 
full devotion to the Lord. We must not treat sin as not a big deal. We must not chuckle at its presence in our life. The Lord is not laughing. It's not a joke to Him. I think we come face to face with a faithful God, but a holy God in Judges. A just God. A just God. Again, it almost brings you to the, we have the conditional promises in Judges. I'm sorry, the unconditional promises. I will not break my covenant. But you also get the unconditional, I'm mixing them all up. You also get the conditional promises that if you do not obey me, I will curse you. That's what you're seeing in justice. You will live in the consequences of your sin. That's the tension. And so the people respond with weeping. They know what they did. They were not unaware of their sin. They provide no defense. Lord, but we, and easily for us, when we're confronted with the holiness of God, we're always looking for self-defense. We're always looking for a way out. We're always rationalizing it. We're always explaining it away. But they don't do that. Their weeping was so intense that the name of the city was changed. This was such a moment in, our, in their existence as a nation that the name of the city got changed to Bokim. Weepers. And then they made a sacrifice to the Lord. Did they repent? Did they just feel bad about the consequences of their sin? There's a difference, right? There's a difference between, oh, what did I do? Now I got to live with that. Oh. And David, against you, and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. There's a difference between genuine, godly, spirit-filled sorrow and conviction that leads you to true repentance and the difference between Oh, I got to live with the consequences of my sin. This stinks. Man, I'm, I just want to just say, I'm making some word choices here uh, that, that are a lot more better for a younger audience. So, uh, you know, just a, just a quick recap. There could have been some other words I used, but, you know, just to be sensitive. You look back on Judges 1, and these people can't do it. They're insufficient. They're inadequate. They don't get the job done. But you look back on Judges 1, you see the opening verses of Judges 2, and you realize once again, we're asking now who, and the answer is, is the Lord is who? The Lord is sufficient, the Lord is able, uh, the Lord is faithful, the Lord is adequate, the Lord is who is, is who is faithful, faithfully keeping His covenant even when His people don't. You know, it's extremely difficult to live in this world as a Christian. Raise your hand if you live in agreement. It's very difficult to live in this world as a Christian. It's easy to be given into syncretism. What I mean by that is merging. Right? The, the covenant with Yahweh, the Lord, the now this covenant and association and cohabitation in the promised land with the Canaanites. It's easy 
for us to fall prey to the poisons of the values and world around us. You know, you saw an article this week potentially that Syracuse, New York, is one of the least Bible-minded cities in the country. That's our place, right? And a lot of those, those 90 through 100 cities are northeast cities. The northeast is a tough place to have a biblical worldview and to engage in biblical faithfulness in our lives. And so it's easy to merge. It's easy to blend. Right? And I think, honestly, and I don't think this is being too harsh, I think that the ultimate form of syncretism in America is the prosperity gospel. We buy into the idea that we will, what, receive financial uh, security and blessing, that everything's going to go right, that we'll avoid suffering if we trust in Jesus. Some of us may say, well, I don't believe in that. Yeah, that's true. I think, I'm saying, I think I don't believe in that. I think I don't embrace that. But at the end of the day, you've got to ask yourself, can you, can you hear the words of Christ and feel any sense of assurance that, it's, that, you're, that you're staying away from it? Jesus says you can't serve God and money. You cannot worship both. I think we may easily reject the prosperity gospel, but at the end of the day, it's easy for us to bow to some of the other counterfeit gods of society, including the God of money. That money dominates our thinking. That we find security and hope when we have more of it rather than less of it. That we have a very difficult time giving it away to people in need. That we're less responsive to ministry opportunities with our resources. That a lot of our money is going to our own entertainment and convenience. That, man, we're spending more than we make. You say, I don't love money. We're spending more than we make. That's a love for money. That's what it is. Now, some of us may find ourselves in seasons of life where you're hitting the red. I'm not talking about those seasons, okay? We've all been there. We've all had to call grandpa and say, help a brother out. Right, Big Walt? I'm not talking about those seasons. I'm talking about willful, continual, like, yeah, I'm going to be dumb and, have, and spend way more than I make. That's a love of money. It's consumerism. I think that's syncretistic. We need to be thoughtful of that. And again, I think we'll go back to that throughout the series. And if you look at what Judah did and all the other tribes, why did they keep these people there? They put them to forced labor. It was a strategic economic decision that provided some sort of financial stability so that they could, yeah, we're being faithful to Yahweh, but at the very same time, we're establishing our financial security in the land. Look out for that. Because that is the kind of pragmatism and, and, and uh, just being consumed with selling out to monetary control that is permeating the values and, and, and behaviors of the people here. We must not be syncretistic. We must be wholly devoted to the Lord. No half-hearted obedience. Run from idols. Small things become big things. And a repeating downward spiral that we'll see in Judges. And I know I'm going longer, but I cannot not avoid this judges as we're asking the question now who judges will bring us to this constant craving this constant need that we don't have a covenant keeping leader we don't have a deliverer we can't do it ourselves and we need someone who is faithful to the covenant to lead us and deliver us from our sin and the oppression that it brings 
Tremper Longman says, we too need a champion to fight our battles for us. Raised up by God, invested with His Spirit in full measure. We too need a leader to secure for us the inheritance that God has promised. One who will perfect our faith. And we know that this is Christ. The Lion of the tribe of Judah. It is Jesus Christ who went up for us on the hill. Who battled our greatest enemies, sin, Satan, and death. And so every step of the way through Judges, we're going to see flawed leaders, faithless people, and we're going to have a heightened hope, a deepened appreciation for the fulfillment of everything that this book foreshadows. Jesus Christ. He's the Deliverer King. It is the Lord who is faithful when we will not be. Praise God for Him. Let's pray. Lord, Judges 1, we praise you that this is in the Word. We confess to you it is hard to integrate. It's, it's a different setting. It's a different time. It's a different way. It's a different place. And it's hard for us to, to get engaged with it and apply it to our everyday life. But yet as we begin to dive in it more, we see that you have very much to teach us in this series. As Keller says, it's, it's, it seems difficult to read, but is profoundly relevant to our day. And I pray that our hearts would be open. I pray that we would look at Christ and worship Him and, and appreciate Him and long for Him to set us free. Because the truth is, while we recognize we're half-hearted in our obedience, that we're often unfaithful, we settle for a casual treatment of sin. And this is in no way, as the people of God today, to bring us shame or guilt or to call into question our security before you. But oh, does it ever highlight the nature of how you have fulfilled your promise. You swore and you kept it. You're a promise-making God and you're a promise-keeping God. And so I pray that everybody here would rest in the perfect obedience of Jesus that was given for our behalf and the perfect substitute for our sin and He, as the one risen from the dead, is our conquering King. May He reserve all the glory. Amen.